thank you very much for the introduction and, and thank you for the invitation to be here. It's really to, to try to talk about uh, power. I mean, and as you heard, I'm a, a political scientist, so this is our unique obsession. Uh, but why, to some extent, it is so useful as a way of, of making sense of, of what's happening with migration. And, and my point here is, is to try to provide some definition, and there, there are a lot of definitions out there, and a vocabulary that we can use. You know, to talk about how it manifests itself and some of the, the mechanisms through which we can understand power at work, uh, and then to, to really, at the end, try to relate it to a range of, of issues rela- uh, concerning mobility uh, and, and the transformation of, of society, and then ending with some ideas of, of how we might engage with issues of power and asking some questions about it and whether the idea is, is in fact useful. And I'm, I'm convinced for myself that it is. I'm not sure that all of you will be convinced, um, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Oliver said that, you know, if we're talking about theory, we should reveal uh, where we come from. And, and from the pictures here, it should be obvious that, well, there's two things. One is that my father is a physicist, so these are uh, some evidence that I, I grew up listening to, to theories about subatomic particles and the way in which they interact. But also um, that my position is... is one in which I approach theory and I approach migration, I think, from, from somewhat different from what you might have heard from Oliver, but also certainly what you'll hear uh, from, from Hein. And I, for me, theory can, can do three things. I mean, one, Oliver talked about already, can help generate questions and hypotheses. I think, secondly, it can, as, as he also said, help to name and reveal empirical findings. So it's not just describing it in a language that you've invented for yourself, but describing it in a language that is legible uh, to other people elsewhere. And then there are people who, who see theory as, as an end in itself to try to reveal patterns uh, and engender generalizations as a way of, of speaking about um, broader trends. I think that, that studying power can do all of those things, but I think that the greatest, for me, I want to, to say that my position is that studying migration is not about explaining migration at all. For me, migration, and why I'm interested in it, is that it helps us to reveal the nature of society, the nature of politics, the nature of community, if you will, and that we really need to actually stop theorizing why people move, uh, or at least limiting our theorization to that within migration studies, but rather see migration as a way of understanding a whole range of other social questions. Uh, And this is, to some extent, where these diagrams come from. And, And what these are pictures of is basically throwing one atom at another and then doing it at a very high speed allows you to understand what that first atom is comprised of. Uh, So that it it acts as a shock, it breaks apart the first atom, and it reveals the nature of that molecule. Uh, and, And I think migration serves in many ways that same purpose, in that when you have the movement of people, it reveals certain things about what binds society together uh, and, and what binds politics and what creates society that allows us to say something much broader than just about migration uh, per se. We can also, though, reverse it by saying only by understanding those structures, those broader structures of society, are we going to understand why people move and why it's uh, so significant. So that is, that is really where I'm coming from. My approach today is, is to say that power 
And the discussions of power can give us this language that can help us signify and add value to studies of, of these sort, in this sort of way. I'm not, like I said, concerned with explaining why people move, but rather how the study of movement reveals something broader around society as a whole. So what are we talking about? Uh, I mean, obviously power has I mean, a lot of, of meanings out there in the world. Uh, this is not, obviously, this is a joke. Uh, this is to try to keep you awake. Uh, it is that, that our concern is with power as a, as a social phenomenon. And what you have here at the bottom of, of the picture is, I think, something that it embodies a lot of what we're talking about here. It looks like an angry mob, which is a very crude expression of power. But this is actually a mob that's going, organizing to chase migrants out of a community in South Africa. So there's a lot of questions that we can ask around power here. It goes beyond just power as, okay, what weapons are they holding and how much damage can they do? But why is it that they mobilized? Why is it that they see themselves as a community? Why is it that they see themselves as having the right to decide who's going to live in their community? And why is it that migration is something that's seen as, as threatening to them? And these are all, trying to answer any of those questions, I think will, will draw us directly into the questions of power. So what do I mean by it? I put a definition here. Uh, I don't know if the translators can see it. Okay, so I won't read it uh, to you, assuming that all of you can see it. But I put uh, three of the sort of grand theorists of power uh, across the top. Max Weber... Karl Marx and, and Michel Foucault. There's probably a lot of other people who could vie for a place there, but I hope that you'll see why in a few minutes I'm, I'm putting uh, them. This is the first stab of power as a definition, and I think we talk now about, for some reasons, about why it's, it's problematic, but it's basically, in this definition, which is one that is usually used, how one group tries to get another group or individual to do something they wouldn't ordinarily do. Like I said, this raises, just looking at that, a whole range of questions that we're going to need to try to answer if we want to discuss power, but really if we want to discuss anything related to how migration transforms society. These are some that already came up in the earlier session. At what level does power operate, and where is it most significant? So where should we be looking for it? How do we observe its effects? Right? If we're saying that it's trying to get you to do something, how do we know that my influence has caused you to do something that you wouldn't have done it anyway. And this is especially the case when we're talking about power exercising itself in a negative way. So it's easy if I say, go run out of the room and you immediately get up and run. But if I say, look, what we're trying to do is stop migration, how do we know that that was successful if nothing's ever happened, if no one moved? You could claim that you were successful, but you don't have that evidence. So how is it that we go and we study those effects. A third question is the degree to which agency or consciousness is necessary. Is power something that is only exercised when I decide for myself I want you to do X or Y and we see that outcome? Or can we talk about power as something that's out there that's somehow without agency or is somehow not connected to particular consciousness? And then lastly, how is it related to this whole range of other concepts notions of legitimacy, authority, influence, control, or regulation. Before we try to answer that, I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about how power is discussed in the literature, how it's used, uh, and I think that uh, you know we'll see to some extent how this is problematic. 
The first is a discussion of power as a possession. This is a, a very classic structuralist sort of, you could say, a structural functionalist or a kind of institutionalist perspective. Often one that you will see very much informing uh, positive legalism or le- lawyers, right, who don't really do empirical work, but assume that power is something that is held in an office or a, a position. So we say, this is why there's a picture of the White House, the president has power to do X, Y, or Z. The president has the power to call out the military. The president has these sorts of powers. Right? Uh, the states, for example, if we're talking about international organizations, have the power to say uh, the UNHCR or other organizations can come into their territory or not. Other people talk about power as a resource. This is something that is kind of out there that can be used. Uh, it's generated and then used. This particularly, we see it in the language around social capital. Language is a relationship, and in all of these it's some sort of relationship, but through generating a series of relationships, you're then able to expand your influence, expand what you can do, get more people to do something for you in the way that that you'd want. Education is also a way of accumulating power, in that you know how things work, you can outsmart people, you can intimidate them, that sort of stuff. Weber, particularly, and others, talks about charisma as a kind of power, as something that you hold, it's a kind of magic that you've got, that you can then wield with other people, on other people, right? Discussions of witchcraft, discussions of of other kinds of symbolic power often fit in this language. The last approach, and the one that I'm going to adopt, and I think makes the most sense when we're studying migration, is really to look at power in a less as a possession or less as a resource, although those can be handy, but rather as a system of strategy, practices, and techniques of influence and, and control. So here we start to see an intersection with the language of governance and regulation, migration and asylum regimes, with emphasis here on regime, which is a system of, of kind of mutually enforcing rules, or even in, in a kind of language of, of social movements. We just had a long discussion at uh, lunch with Raoul around how social movements try to mobilize people, how they try to, to shift the discussion, how they try to, to change the way in which we talk about things. So I think that is really, when we're talking about migration, is the, the kind of way in which we should understand the relationships that surround power. In all cases, power can operate through at least three different mechanisms, and I think this is useful when we're trying to start to move from an abstract discussion of influence to looking at the concrete manifestations. The first of these is is what many of us will understand as power in its crudest form, and it's the one term that, that Weber himself, whose picture I've left up here, describes as power. This is coercion, which is really the use of, of physical force or the threat of physical force as a way of getting people to do something or not do something. This is a kind of approach that's typically in political science associated with what we would call a realist school or neo-realists in which the emphasis is on military power, security, border control, all of these sorts of nasty things that we typically don't care very much for. We also see it manifested then in terms of land invasions, uh, slum raising, clearing of slums, torture, rape. All of these are the kind of physical manifestations of power, along with, for our discussions, the use of detention, deportation, police harassment, these sorts of things. I think what we have to also look at, and this is a point I'll I'll try to re-emphasize, is the degree to which various forms of power intersect 
So when we talk about police harassment or detention, is this only a manifestation of power in the sense that we're deporting people and we really expect that the deportations are going to clear our, um, our land of somebody else? Or is there also a symbolic or other kind of, of power at work here? We'll get back to that. The second way of looking at power is one that comes out very much of a structuralist or kind of Marxist position, which here focuses very much on kind of material means of getting to people uh, to do something. For those of us who've had jobs in the past, this is the kind of power that usually works to get you up in the morning. Right? The idea that you're going to get something pay, being paid for the work that you do, even if it's work that you wouldn't otherwise want to do. Right? This is, as I said, characteristic of Marxism or, or various structuralist approaches, uh, dependency theory, for example, which tends to relate power in, in forms of economic production and unequal distribution of economic uh, wealth. It's also something that we see working in terms of market and labor regulation, capital accumulation and investment. You get more power when you get more money or when you have various forms of capital or in various kinds of assisted voluntary return programs, where if we can't deport you, at least we can try to provide an incentive for you to leave. Right? And so this is where you see these kind of uh, forms of power manifested in, in the migration. This is also something, whereas as coercive power, as I mentioned, was something that was is often supported by symbolic or other kinds of power, so too is materialism. And if you look at, at this picture on the far right, the sort of Chinese satire of a, of a Coke ad, I think you can see a kind of reference there. It's, it's not only about marketing and, and expanding Coke's value, but Coca-Cola is one of the most recognizable symbols in the world. You immediately see that and you have a certain reaction to it. The use of brands, the use of, of these sorts of symbols is something that often is used in support of economic power. And I think that draws us to this last form, a manifestation of power, which comes through values, norms, identities. And this is often the diffi most difficult form of power to see in practice, but is often the most powerful form and the most sustainable form, precisely because it is so difficult to see and so difficult to combat. So while it might be easy to kill, or relatively easy, to kill a king or a president, it's often very difficult to change how people understand how they, how they relate to each other, what they want, and, and, and who, who they think they are. This is something that, that comes in the literature, obviously has a long history, but gained prominence, has gained a lot of prominence with what we could consider post-structuralist approaches, linking back even within the Marxist tradition to Gramsci and, and to others, who saw values and a kind of intellectual hegemony or domination as a very powerful way of controlling uh, society. So here again, this introducing ideas of legitimization of authority and rights, this notion that even the rights that you have are in some way constructed, are some way discussed what you think you should be able to do, is not something that's given by God, but is something that is constructed through your education, through your relationships, your willingness to accept other people's power over you, is also something that comes through a series of socialization and normalization. Even, and here you'll see the critique of the economists, even the idea that you have wants of a particular kind is something that is 
taught to you. The idea that we all have different wants. Some people may see a shirt that they love. Others will think it's very ugly. These are the sorts of things that are socially constructed wants, and it shows the degree to which these kind of ideas can influence uh, behavior. It's also, I think, for us, particularly important because this is where the basis of community and the sense that we belong to a particular place and this is our place, our territory, our people really comes from. With that, I think what we get to then is, is what I would call the uh, kind of fourth face of power. And here I'll try to answer some of the questions I raised earlier. Where we move from this kind of focus on, on physical coercion to one where we focus much more on diffuse or decentered kinds of power. What Althusser, Althusser, however you want to say his name, I'm sure there's French people here who say it better, uh, decentered structures of dominance, and this includes uh, various ways of setting agendas, deciding what it is that we talk about, how we talk, the types of interactions we have, is very related to how power is exercised. So what you see at, the, at this picture at the bottom is, for example, people who, under no urging, are willing to pay money to buy clothes, these are people from the Soccer World Cup, Argentinians getting together with um, some, some older Argentinian men enjoying Ni- younger, most very beautiful Nigerian women, um, but all dressed in their national costumes, none of them living in those countries, but somehow still feeling this loyalty to it. Here we get a question, no one is asking them to do that, no one is telling them they must do it, and yet they feel this kind of loyalty, and they organize themselves according to these categories of belonging. These are sort of decentered systems of power. They've organized themselves without anyone asking them to, maybe in the past asking, but not anymore. And these are, are the sort of things that I think that are very important for us to try to look at. It can be exercised unconsciously, they often have unintentional effects, and they're not necessarily with an identifiable agent. And by looking at these, I think we shift our discussion away from some kind of crude power or law some of these systems of meanings and where they come from. Again, to reiterate, why is it that people believe this is their country, that they should exclude others, that others are threats? Where is that discourse coming from? Where is that language coming from? And with this, I think, it opens up a whole range of of areas for us to explore around daily life. So if we look at the life of migrants and their intersection with other people, What is it that they're doing? What is the nature of the reaction? What is it that can be said? Under what conditions do they try to claim rights? Under what conditions do they try to remain invisible? These are all these kind of decentered results of decentered power and the way in which communities are bound and the way in which uh, power and and rights can be exercised. I wanted to just look at at these two examples also as as ways of of prop. Of, of asking us analytically what we can do in terms of analyzing and using the notions of, of power. Right? Viewed from different perspectives, these could be seen as capitalist kind of propaganda. Right? On the left, what you see here, it looks like this is a Congolese sign painter in Johannesburg, a painting that he made. But what is it that underlies the imagery that he uses in expressing this man? He's a Western suit, he's doing business, there's a certain norm of respectability that's there that's being spread through this message. Right? There's not someone saying, go to Johannesburg and spread the message of capitalism, the way in which capitalism takes place. But he has internalized this, 
This is a, a message that's then being spread. Similarly, on the right-hand side, I don't know how clear the picture is to everyone, you see, this is a, a sort of satirical painting called the Socialist Party, which you know has Obama there being put in a room with all of these other Karl Marx, again, uh, Stalin, Mao, looks like... Um, um, Castro in the back with his Cuba Libre uh, celebrating but it's also a way in which you link all of these as a, as a way of resistance and I think this is something that we also we get to when we look at, at representing these things by linking Obama with these others you're sending a message that's very inf- that, that is very indirect but it's basically trying to discredit his policies by linking him to a range of, of other kind of discourses that, at least within uh, the United States, would be seen as illegitimate. Let me then try to, to, to come to an end by linking all of this to how we could study um, migration, or certainly how I've tried to study it. And this is, I think, where, where we get to ideas of political community and the state and the exercise of power. We have it at one level you have this idea that, that sovereignty and that power is, if we take Hannah Arendt's quote, is nowhere as absolute than in matters of immigration, naturalization, nationality, and exclusion. But in all of those things, she's not only talking about the physical control of borders, although that is, is something that's, uh, that is something that states try to do, but underlying that is a whole range of discourses that have naturalized that, that have said it is okay for states to do this, that it is, it is natural somehow for a population uh, to, to live in a specific territory. And this is something that we see in Weber and in all, almost all of the work in political science on the state. We have a clearly delimited territory, you have a, a, a population that sees itself as a nation, and you have a, a set of standardized, nested, reinforcing rules that says, from the family all the way up to the state, that says we are one people. So the classic definition of the nation-state, all of these various forms of power at work. When you have migration then, you immediately start to see how that power is being transformed. For one, people are moving across territorial bounds, things that we've taken for granted. They're challenging the boundaries of what it is to be a community. They're not staying in one place, they're going elsewhere. You start to see a diversity of population types with a whole range of different sets of values uh, and, and different ways of being that are no longer bound in this particular way, in the way that political science and to some extent even old-fashioned anthropology and others have understood community. And I think we'll, we'll hear more about issues of belonging and, and later in the week. But I think when we start to look at this and we're trying to add signification to what we see in terms of transnationalism, when we see in terms of families that operate across multiple spaces, economies that operate across multiple spaces, the use of a language of power and the use of a, a language of, of a kind of informal regulation can help us to really understand why these are so significant in terms of the basic building blocks of how our society, our global society, is organized. And I'm just going to end, I won't talk about these at length, but these are a whole range of other tools that, and, and kind of vocabulary that we can use when we're talking about issues of power um, in terms of, of migration. This is where I think we would intersect with a whole range of other fields where we could take what we do and start to speak to a language, in, to, to people in anthropology, to people in, in political science, to people in economics, 
um, to people in literature even about how they see the world and the kind of ways in which um, society is organized. And as I said when I started, I think our most our power and our influence is not from speaking to each other about why migrants move or how they move, but rather through what we know about migrants, engaging with that whole range of other disciplines and fields to say, look, what you're claiming about the way in which society is organized somehow needs to be refigured or rethought in an era in which people are moving, in which those boundaries that you often presume and those values which you often presume uh, no longer hold. Let me just then throw up a, a series of questions. Some of these I already raised, some are others, which we can discuss, I hope we can discuss. Again, where should we be looking for power? To what degree is it most significant at, at different levels of interactions? Again, how do we understand it? How do we identify it empirically? But also, you know, what is it good for? What can we, if our interest is in, is it just in explaining the past or in trying to develop these kind of forward-looking theories? Is it a way of, of trying to bring together a whole range of different sort of discussions that we've been having, which I think it is. For me, Weber's approach of looking at different forms of power helps us bring economists, anthropologists, lawyers into a single discussion. But also, can our discussion of power and our analysis of power be helpful for those of us who want to move beyond the academy, who want to try to understand how to influence policy why is it that those of us in the South tend to do certain types of research while people in the North tend to do other forms of research? Can we use the analysis of power and turning it back onto ourselves to try to understand how to be better theorists, but also how to support others and, and to challenge uh, whether it's, it's unjust migration systems or whether it's unjust academic systems? Uh, what, what can this analysis of power uh, do for us?